0: I'm Vix, I'm Vanessa, and together we are, with v and Events with Intention, and the hosts of the Gap podcast. Each week, we will bring you one episode focused on helping you get informed, get connected, and get ahead in your goals for your business and your life.
1: Join us as we interview leaders across all industries as they redefine their normal
0: while we try to bring you as much information as possible we also like to talk shit every once in a while too stay connected with us on instagram facebook and youtube at the get podcast and on withvnv.com okay hello welcome to a very fancy special hour of the get we've got vix raytano having us check you and a few special guests tonight yes we've got Alex Lima. Hey everybody. My husband. <laughs> yes, and we've got all of the fur babies. All the fur children. Yeah. <laughs> Especially Frank.
1: <All> right. Frank <laughs> and Good. Alex
0: have a very special relationship. Now, are you the first dude on the get? Yes. Yes. That is
2: That's an an honor. exciting. Thank you. That is exciting. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, we're actually taking the male opinion instead of squashing it down like yes. we normally do.
1: That's the patriarchy.
2: Down with the patriarchy.
0: See? But this is why you get to be the first, not only because you are married to one of my favorite humans but because and my favorite dogs, but Obviously. because, but because I, I think that you have a very valuable opinion to bring, and I'm really excited. We've been talking a little bit about uh, politics quite a bit. Vanessa and I often talk about business as it relates to how we get funds, how we continue to grow our businesses, and what it is to be females in business in two very different businesses, um, but both very male-dominated industries. So tonight, because Alex is quite the political expert, we're gonna get into it and talk about what it means To have a deeper understanding of this, why it's important. And then we're kind of going to riff because I think that there's not enough of these conversations happening. And as Vanessa knows, my main mission in life is to give voice to issues that need to be heard.
1: Yes. And I am here because I will be one of the first ones to admit that I don't know more than surface level when it comes to politics. And recently is when I've really started to understand more with Alex educating me fix you educating me, you know, clients, people, and just because we have to be and having that understanding how important it is to decondition yourself from like what you've known your whole life. Um, so you know, I see myself as kind of sitting back a little bit and being the voice of listeners or the audience that maybe don't know as much as the two of you guys, because I always say this, like I feel like you two are some so educated and you break very, very complex issues because when it comes to politics, when it comes to race, when it comes to status, there are very, very complex issues that are hard to understand. And both of you do such a good job of breaking it down. So I'm gonna be like the person that pops in and is like, excuse me, I have a question. Can you explain this to me? And I'm gonna continue to drink my tequila, so. Yes. Cheers. Cheers.
0: <laughs> that. Uh, no, I, I always appreciate the perspective of, I don't know, but educate me. And I don't, you know, I, I very much appreciate the big, cause you are the ultimate hype woman. So I very much appreciate the hype there, but, let's let Alex tell us a little bit about his background and why you are so passionate about this because I don't really know so tell me your backstory how you got passionate about this
2: Uh, yeah so first of all thanks very much for having me on I appreciate the uh, the opportunity here Um, I can sometimes get a little heady with this stuff so if at any point I'm not making any sense to anybody just just cut me off because I can ramble. We're well, really
1: in. Yeah. We're good at that. I can ramble
2: at times too. <laughs> well, it's
1: necessary um, though.
0: You're passionate. It's good.
2: If I had to narrow down sort of a like a, a crux of where I became uh, interested in it, it probably came from my father. He's always been uh, very much into politics. There were always political magazines and books hanging out uh, around the house. Uh, he always had the news on and was talking about it when I was younger. And like most people, I think just like religion, I probably found my political opinions initially from the opinions of my father. Um, And when I was in high school, freshman in high school, uh, September the 11th happened, and that really kick-started my own sort of um, journey into some stronger opinions about politics as opposed to just sort of a a passive interest. Um, And I decided when I was going to college, uh, which almost didn't happen. I almost joined the military it was talked out of it by my by my mother wow. um, Yeah, uh, I started to formulate some of my own opinions as I began to get a little more of a formal education on the topic um, And I found my passion there in high school uh, my beliefs certainly changed quite a bit from what they were initially and um I found work in politics for a while. I shadowed, uh, I I interned with a public defender for a period of time in upstate New York, which is where I went to school. Um, I found uh, work as a legislative aide, and intern, and then a a legislative aide with a member of the state Senate in New Jersey for a while. Um, Fun fact, I don't think I knew that. Yeah. And then it was off to the races from there. I can't say that I've actually had a formal job training um, since that time within the realm of elected politics, but I've stayed very passionate with it. Um, I love history. I love political science. Uh, I love talking about big ideas like race and, and gender and equality and class and economics and all of it. So.
1: Well,
0: I mean, you you know, seems these days the only prerequisite you need is to be a game show host. So apparently. And a Twitter star.
2: And it so, looked like
1: a Cheeto.
0: Back here. Right. And I think that that is a very interesting thing. So I am the first to say one. one of my jobs, and I don't know, Alex, if you know this, but when I was a cub reporter, I had to write who I voted for. I was reporting in Long Island and in my bio, I had to write who I voted for in the last election. And because, yeah, which is a wild thing, right? You don't really the whole point was they wanted to democratize the news process because they felt like there were these very polarizing opinions and you didn't really know the journalist's background and then you and i've always been a registered independent because i had aspirations of being a true broadcaster Mm -hmm. and i felt that you shouldn't be republican or Democrat. like i don't vote in primaries never have but i will vote no matter what like I will go and be the last person to vote in a full election. So I had voted for Barack Obama, and I actually covered his election for NBC30 as a college reporter and all that. And then I I put it on, and I was reporting in a very Republican town in Long Island. They actually broke my car window because I was looking into the school budget. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That was a wild, well, there was a very interesting line item, let's just put it that way. School budgets, money always drives passion, fear, and and conversation, right?
1: Sure.
0: So I think that now that's probably where I'd like to start this conversation, right? We just infused, what, $2 trillion? Does anybody even know what that looks like? Monopoly doesn't even do $2 trillion yeah. <laughs> into, the, into the economy. So from a fiscal perspective... What is that going to do to us, do you think, in your opinion, down the road? Like, how do we recover from that? Can we actually even make that up in GDP?
2: So taking a step back uh, and talking about your experience as a reporter that had to actually divulge who you voted for in the last election, it's a funny thing. If you go back to the uh, origination of political publications at, in the, in the late 18th century when, you know, the Articles of Confederation were turning into the Constitution and the American yeah. Revolution had just finished. Um, one of the reasons that a lot of historians attribute to the level of political literacy in the country was the amount of publications that were circulating throughout the 13 colonies and eventually the rest of the states that came on mm-hmm. to form the United States. But one of the things that changed about the way that we conceptualize those publications was that back then everyone was hyper partisan and they wore it on their sleeve, and nobody ever really saw anything wrong with it. There were socialist publications or uh hyper laissez-faire capitalist publications, there were pro-slavery publications, there were abolitionist publications. But it was never tongue-in-cheek. It was never Co- cloaked in a fair and balanced sort of framework. Everyone was partisan and it was expected from your publications. And now, um, you know, everyone likes to comment upon their own, you know, fair and balanced nature in news. Um, well, and news we all run around as though there's, we all run, run around and act as though there's no bias in our news. And I'm not always entirely sure that that's the most healthy thing to do. Oh,
0: I can tell you there's bias because I worked in a newsroom. I can tell you 100%. They, we, are all, we were always reporting on things that we had to write about.
2: Yep, yep. Um, and Well,
1: can't you see that from, like, depending on the different TV station that you watch? Like, where you get your news, how it's reporting? Yes. You know, I think about what's on in our house versus, like, what's on in other people's house. What type of news are we getting versus what getting.
0: well and i think that's a social media conversation it's almost like because if you think about when hamilton published the federalist papers like he destroyed his own party hamilton to me is one of the most fascinating historical figures because had he lived everything would have been different right maybe he would have set us up i think in a totally different way
2: well uh, there's still a lot even though he he you know met a premature end there's still a lot that uh you can certainly attribute to him for right. instance a, a central bank of the united states is a is a core tenant of it comes directly from alexander hamilton um he certainly believed in a strong federalist presence as opposed to a more uh diversified um decentralized agrarian state but um yeah getting back to your question about what's happening now with the fiscal stimulus due to the coronavirus, the numbers are pretty staggering. So 2 trillion is a pretty low ball number there. It's probably closer to eight to 10 trillion when you factor in the federal reserves ability to buy distressed debt, um, and to backstop some corporations that are running into a lot of trouble there. As far as the congressionally allocated money, you're probably, um, around, Amount, but really, when you're talking trillions, I mean, what's the difference between two trillion and five trillion and ten ten trillion, right?
0: I don't think we'll ever know what that looks like. Like, I know what a million dollars in a case looks like because I love James Bond movies, but I really have absolutely no idea how many cases or trucks you'd need for
1: trillion.
2: No, it's a lot. Who's
1: on the? Is there like, who's on the? (laughs) (laughs)
0: I think we got rid of that with grants on the thousand. Like I think they're over that. I think they're over that. So what what's your opinion, good or bad, that we I mean, obviously needed, right? Because so many people lost their jobs. We have the the post that really made me ask Vanessa to like kind of nudge this along was the one where you said that we are a, a prosperous society with all these people looking for food and and all of that and two a few years ago like before i even met vanessa we were talking about schneiderman the ad in new york he had done a lot of bad things whatever i was at trader joe's and the guy was like but he's a good ag and i said you cannot be a good person if you do things on the backs of others Mm -hmm. so like our society is prosperous at what cost Mm -hmm. right or is this just a faux narrative that everybody has decided to push
2: so the posting about uh the um the uh the food assistance shelters and and um distribution centers in new jersey and the commentary that i made the term that i used was affluent society which is actually a famous book i think in the 60s or 70s by an economist um and a social critic called john kenneth galbraith um and he had a lot to do with the evolution of political thinking Um, back in the 60s and 70s, uh, before him, there was a large emphasis in both parties placed upon the idea of concentration of power. So we talked, there were platforms in both parties about um, concerning themselves with the concentration of financial wealth in the hands of financiers, for example, or the roll-up of certain industries into today, what we call you know, or even back then we called monopolies or oligopolies or, you know, basically cartels in a particular industry that you can't get around.
1: Right. Um,
2: um, and what John Kenneth Galbraith basically said was that in an, in the affluent society, in modern society, you know, post-World War II, um, we saw a huge explosion in, um, the, the, the level of income and, um, the level of wealth for a large swath of Americans. And basically the idea behind the affluent society was that you don't need to worry about how the economy grows and the concentration of wealth in a particular industry. That's natural in the modern economy. And that sort of thinking really gave way to what I believe is a faulty uh, philosophical premise in the modern democratic party because it fails to recognize the presence of economic power and its impact on people's lives so we're relegated to talking about things culturally like gun control like abortion like uh race which are all of course extremely important topics um but if you want to talk about something that hits every race and socioeconomic class and can really bring a coalition together, you have to talk about liberty through economic power.
0: I 100% agree with you. That has been my, you know, Vanessa and I talk about this a lot, I am very much driven by money because I believe money is the only way to be in control and to have power. You cannot have power if you do not have dollars. and that often means that people are pushed out of scenarios that, or pushed out of rooms where they should have space, right? So, you know, one thing that I think is very interesting right now is that when we talk about money, we talk about wealth from an individual perspective, but we don't always talk about generational wealth, right? So, like. We don't, com- I mean, I I don't, and I don't think you you guys do either. Like, I don't think you have a, you know, You're chibri- uh, chibri- uh, so Chippequatic. Chibri- <laughs> chibri- like, I don't um, have a
2: Not that I'm aware of. <laughs>
0: I haven't been invited to your Nantucket compound yet. But uh,
2: <laughs> if we have one, I don't know about it.
0: Sorry, not this year. We're social distancing. And i of all the maids, only one. <laughs> oh, but, but jokes aside, like, There's definitely, I think now more than ever, a very large disparity in people who have money and who don't. Mm -hmm. And I I wonder now, because people are talking about money more just because of the economic stimulus, if this conversation can shift. And if maybe some people who talk about it are really talking about it from a place of look over here as opposed to over here, like we were talking about with Biden, right? Or the candidates from the Democratic Party. You said something interesting in in our pre-conversation about the farm system. So I would love to kind of talk about how we groom and, and pick our politicians, because I do think that that's almost the issue, right? Where we talk about like, we want to make sure workers have money. We want to do all these things. So they're doing this like song and dance over here, so that you don't see them doing all the bad things over here, right? It's like a little kid or a dog.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's truly nefarious actors out there in political life that are doing the dog and pony show like that, you know, pulling the veil over your eyes, so to speak, or distracting you with this to get away with that. But um, I do think that there are members of each party who are genuinely concerned with some of the things that you're talking about. And I I do think it's the vast majority of them. I think the prescriptions that are available to us are just extremely limited. And the reason why I, I, like I said beforehand, I I run in pretty progressive circles as far as my thinking goes. I would say that the majority of my friends also do, but I, I find it to be sort of a fruitless conversation to constantly bash on Trump, which I know is all the rage right now because I'll borrow a phrase from one of the journalists that I really like. It's similar to eating junk food. You know, it feels good when you're doing it. um, But it, it, it doesn't provide much in the way of nutrition long-term. And so what I spend the majority of my time thinking about is how we can improve the arguments that we make on our side against someone like that, who I, I do believe is a truly nefarious actor, not someone who has good intentions, but just the wrong, you know the wrong means to obtaining those objectives so in terms of what the democratic party is presenting right now i think it's extremely limited Mm -hmm. you mentioned not being able to find a candidate that's younger than the age of 75. right um if you look at the two candidates that embody that argument right now on the democratic side you see joe biden for most people and you see bernie sanders Bernie Sanders is, in any other um, period of time, pre-1980 in the United States, would be considered a classic New Deal Democrat. He would not be a Democratic Socialist. He wouldn't be a Socialist. He wouldn't be a Communist, despite what everybody likes to yell and scream about. He is pretty middle of the road when it comes to to most of his ideas. Um, the problem is that since the 1960s and the change that we were talking about before about not worrying about economic power anymore, Yeah. People who thought like that have been pushed out of the Democratic Party. And so there's, there hasn't been 40 or 50 or 60 years of cultivation of those minds and those sorts of opinions within the Democratic electorate, so you don't see people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s with a big national or state profile that are coming forward with those ideas and more that are built on some of Bernie Sanders' basic ideas. What you see is milquetoast candidates like Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton, and in my opinion, Barack Obama, even though that's somewhat unpopular of an opinion, uh, over and over and over again. It's because those candidates, in particular, managed to get their donation dollars from big business. They've decided not to be the party for the working class anymore, unfortunately, um, and they've decided to defer to big business because it means it means big donation dollars for them, and that's a problem for the Democratic Party.
0: So, one thing that I think is is very interesting is you use the word progressive. How would you define that? I think that we all struggle, right? Because nobody, people ask you Republican, Democrat, right? And we mm-hmm. kind of know, red, blue. There's certain tenants that come with each of those, those teams, so to speak, mm-hmm. or sides. Um, as I said to you earlier, I vote blue because I vote on Roe v. Wade. I do not want that precedent changed, and that is the only precedent that matters to me. However, I am fiscally conservative. I don't believe that we should have all of these government programs. Like I think that we are running rampant with the budget. Like I really do. I I believe that, but I also don't really understand within our current system what opportunities we have for change. So when we say progressive, mm-hmm. I typically think fiscally maybe a little more conservative and socially incredibly liberal, right? Love is love, all of those things, equality, the ERA, all that, Mm -hmm. Uh, Equal Rights Act, and, you know, all of that. So what do you and your circles typically define that as? Because I think that, I don't think anyone does a good job of really defining it.
2: Yeah, so that's a really good question, actually. Um, And it's one that needs to be asked more often because people need to define their terms uh, before they can get into any sort of a meaningful debate. It's important to understand that the term Democrat and Republican uh, is just a term uh, that delineates coalitions of different voting blocks that come together to form a larger party. So Democrat and Republican really can mean anything mm-hmm. beyond that. And in the past, the Democratic Party, for example, in the mid to late 1800s, were considered the party of uh, pro-slavery. They were a coalition of Southern uh, white aristocrats, if you will, many of them slave owners. Um, and white working class people uh, in the North somewhat and in the upper Midwest. um, And they were very Um, pro-slavery.
0: People always forget Lincoln was a Republican.
2: Lincoln was a Republican. By today's standards, he would not be. um, But, you know, really all that is to say, all that is evidence to say that Democrat and Republican really doesn't hold much in the way of definition. It's just a coalition of groups coming together for a voting block. If you ask me what progressive means today, progressive to me means something a little bit different than liberal. Mm. And I think people define progressives as what what you said earlier, um, socially very liberal um, and then fiscally something else what i would define a progressive as and i consider myself a progressive is someone who places the concept of liberty uh on an economic on an economic framework first and foremost okay Um, i'm a pretty traditional new deal democrat i think the government the federal government especially has an important role to play in managing the economy um, and in providing for the population beyond what traditional conservatives may just think is the common defense. In the Constitution, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the state was meant to promote the general welfare of the people in addition to provide for the common defense. And to me, that means uh, going back to our New Deal roots from post-Great Depression through World War II and up uh, into the 60s with uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. So I do think that government, pro- government has a large role to play in social welfare. Um, I think liberal is something slightly different. I think liberalism today is more closely defined with social issues and meritocracy. Um, I think a lot of CEOs and white collar workers nowadays, especially on the, on the coast, but I'm not trying to overly generalize here, um, what we might consider, quote unquote, the winners of society would consider themselves liberal. The nexus of their political opinions come from social issues and largely they believe that the economy works itself out through a meritocracy. You're successful because... um,
0: You work hard, you.
2: You're successful because you work hard. You're successful because uh, you earned it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, again, I I don't wanna piss anybody off, but I think... You're
1: allowed
2: to. That's in my opinion where where current um, democratic politics lie on the democratic political side. Um, And I think we need to reconcile with some of those differences, because there is a schism happening right now between the party, and we need to reconcile it if we're going to win.
0: Well, I really like what you said, because I I do believe that there, you know, I, I always identify as fiscally conservative, socially liberal. But I agree with you in that I do think the government has to take care of some things. Like, why else do we pay taxes right we pay a significant amount of taxes and I often since I became a business owner when I was living in New York there's this thing called the UBT unincorporated business tax it is 20% of your gross income every year no matter what you could be an LLC you could be an S Corp if you live in New York City you pay this 20% I fought with my accountant every single year I was like but why I was like but if I become a C Corp it's co-incorporated he's like no I was like, what if I become an escort? What if I become this? How do I get around paying them this money? Like, and what the hell am I paying them that for? He's like, it's just a line item. I said, but you know, I think where my disconnect is, is I don't necessarily need you to worry about calling up a militia to protect me from foreign invaders right now. I need you to put your tech in place so that we don't have mismanaged or elections that are influenced by misinformation from bad actors, from nefarious actors, right? Like I need you to protect us in a 21st century way. I don't want you investing in protections that really no longer serve anyone. Like there's hundreds of laws on the books in New York. Again, I know New York much better than I know New Jersey, although I am learning New Jersey, but there's like a law that you can't be outside with your cow after 6 p.m. on Sunday. Like, do you have a cow? I didn't have a cow when I lived there. Late. Actually, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Frank, Frank is not allowed outside at night. No, no,
1: no. He's no late.
2: cow right now. No late
1: walking. We tipped. we tipped him before.
2: Oddly Uh-oh. enough. Um, yeah, I mean, interestingly, the one thing that has continuously grown and improved and become uh, more, more and more well funded from the federal government and from the taxes that we pay to the federal government uh, is the military, is the Department of Defense. Um, so when you talk about creating a 21st century framework that the federal government can use to protect the general welfare um, I think that also gets back to uh, one of the things that that we were talking about earlier, the sort of a, the lack of a farm system. I mean, you don't really see a whole lot of young people uh, getting involved in politics over the last 20 years. I certainly don't um, up until rather recently where I think I've started to see more of a resurgence, especially post-2016. Yeah. It's interesting that way that Donald Trump can, can even uh, some really great, productive and beautiful things can come out of, uh, something trash uh, fire, <laughs> a I'll dumpster, a it. dumpster fire. Trash fire. Um,
0: <gasps> but, I was a young Democrat in college. I was. Yeah. I was so in it. I was so in it.
2: I think, um, you know, I think the government, honestly, I think the government needs, a. a to hire like a a promoter or a series of promoters, honestly, because I think it gets a really bad rap. I think it's really hip and cool nowadays to say that the government is totally ineffective and broken and it's good for nothing and that we should be relying on capitalists and and industry and large corporations like Google and Facebook and Tesla and blah, blah, blah to to accomplish everything that we need for society. They're way more efficient or what have you. Um, But, You know, I think what happens in that situation is that the government ends up failing to recruit sound minds uh, and good hearts to go into civic service and to help improve the government for a 21st century framework. I think we lack that right now.
1: So how does the government do that, especially in a time now where you know, a lot of us, I think I speak for a lot of us, business owners, uh, millennials, whatever, feel like everything in the government has failed us. Right. You know, we don't feel protected. We're in a pandemic right now. When it comes to unemployment, that's a mess. When it comes to all these systems and structures that we're told, like the government is supposed to take care of us to do and you don't feel taken care of, like, how do you change that narrative to get people that aren't 75 years old white men like running the country how do you change that
2: that's a really great question hire <laughs> vix maybe uh,
0: yes <laughs> um for the win for reason i can't um, wait to be
1: first lady
0: uh, i love it yes no, I, you know, I think what's so I was as you were speaking because again, what you say is I agree with you. I do. I, I think, I think that everything you say is very thoughtful, very empathetic, and and I think that that is what is lacking. Right? We don't really see ourselves in other people's situation. I hope now that 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 comes out of COVID, that that is a good thing that came out of the situation. But I also think what's very interesting about where we're at is that we will often choose what feels good or, you know, no one's reading anything beyond a headline, right? Perfect example, Jared Kushner. Definitely think he's a pod person. Like, I'm sorry. I have no, absolutely no idea. The Man has no affect. So I don't know what is happening.
2: When you say pod person, what do you mean by that?
0: Sight <laughs> like a, yep. You mean like
2: no, yeah. a little yeah.
0: person inside doing the work and he's just like,
1: He's a vessel.
0: (laughs) Right. Like, you've seen Men in Black, or if you haven't, I don't know why. Oh my God,
1: one of the best movies ever. One of the best underrated movies ever. Correct.
0: But I will say that the news media gave him a really hard time. And I kind of was like, guys, come on. Like, do better. So what happened was they asked him if the election would be postponed. And he literally said, because I heard it, I didn't have to read it. He was like, that's not my decision to make. All the headlines. Kushner says election will be canceled. People lost their minds. Like, and when I went to school and I had the privilege of learning from two embedded journalists who recovered Vietnam, I learned from one documentarian whose parents survived the Holocaust. And then she did a documentary on that. They had shipped her out of Germany, dyed her her hair blonde and like shipped her out. She was Jewish and it was a whole thing, right? Her parents survived Auschwitz of all places. Um, and then, you know, I, I had learned from like an editor at Time, like I had some really incredible professors who did sit on the sidelines of history. I feel now when we sit on the sidelines of history, we're sitting on the sidelines with the gif of the popcorn, trying to see how we can stir up issues as opposed to bringing us together. Because that's what news should do. News and information should provide both sides. So I have to agree with you but I
2: have to know the other side. So I I like where you're going with some of this. And I was thinking about this a little bit earlier today. You know, again, I'm going to preface all this by saying that I come at this from the left and from a position of wanting to improve our arguments so that we can build a larger coalition and improve people's lives. I don't say this to knock anyone or take this into a, you know, a, a, a nefarious or disingenuous place. But I do have to say, no one is going to get me to ever defend Jared Kushner, um, <laughs> because he is the embodiment of nepotism. Yeah. Um, in general, however, um, when you mention the media getting on his case for a response that was actually pretty vanilla. Um, And then trying to spin it in a way as him saying, you know, hey, November elections, I don't know if we're going to have them or not. I think that sort of the attempt, whatever the motives of the media, the reaction, the reactionary impulse that people get from seeing a headline from that is completely and totally unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And I think it actually ends up stifling the conversation that we need to have around the Trump administration in general and around the purpose and the objectives that our government should have and what it means going forward to provide an alternative option to the nepotism and the xenophobia and the dangerous um, motives that we're seeing coming out of the current administration. I actually think it's unhealthy to react to something like that, whether it's truly malignant or benign, whatever Jared Kushner said, with outright reactionary anger, um, I think it's far more fruitful and beneficial for us to really take a step back and try to analyze things. And and that's why I'm so hard on the left in general. Um, And that's why I'm a a large advocate for the federal government because I don't think it does a very good job of promoting itself. And one of the things that I'm really worried about this morning when I woke up, I had to write this down, was I think the impulse that people get from seeing incompetent leadership during COVID-19 is to say government is good for nothing It's totally useless and outdated. It's dragging its feet. It's incapable of responding in a crisis. And so the answer to that is to rely on leaders like, uh, Walmart and CVS pharmacy and Google for contract, contact tracing and McKinsey for, um, you know, manager, managing the crisis and the return back to work in places like New York. The, worst thing in my opinion that we can do is discard the purpose of the federal government and run into the arms of concentrated financial power. What we need to do is take a look at incompetent leadership and say, no, what the true answer to this is, is restoring our faith in competent bureaucracy in the ability of the government to actually respond to people's problems. Cause there was a time when we did that and it was for the large, the benefit of the large majority of people in this country. And that's different than discarding it and saying, um, you know, the, the monopolists of the nation are the ones that really know how to solve our problems.
0: I, I, I value that opinion because I think that it is a good one. And I also think that my biggest fear, and I'm a very public person. I like Google, like I don't really care about that. However, I find that there are certain things that we are giving up in our privacy, like Project Nightingale. Are you familiar with that project? Talk to me. Okay. So Google has access to every piece of Uh, medical data it's supposedly blind so like it would say you know male mid-30s like went in got temperature taken but it also knows where you are what you're like it they know so they can match that information and then sell it to advertisers and they you know the fact that project nightingale has hooked all of the medical information there's actually a great podcast on this from science versus also has to do with the 5g right situation like I think that there are a lot of things that we have given over to Facebook. And as a marketer, I have a very intimate relationship with this content because for a long time on Facebook, up until Congress got involved, you could literally pinpoint how much somebody made, when they made purchases online, what they were doing. I could find, I mean, I used to turn around ads like in incredible ways, because I would be able to pinpoint exactly who you were because I had consumers just like you. Now, I do think that there's value to that, but I also think that it is the Spider-Man argument, which is with great power comes great responsibility, right? And I don't think that tech people should be the stewards of this information because I don't think that they have the ethics that are required to manage human data. Because to them, every, and this is not a judgment on developers, but it is, it is a true conversation or commentary on personality types, like developers, doctors, et cetera. People like that have to see things as the base level, because if they see them as humans, they can't do their job.
2: I think to an extent, we're saying um, a lot of the same things. Yeah. I think technology is, um, I don't want to say apolitical because it certainly becomes political, but the advent of new technology and the sort of creative destruction mentality that some of the stewards of industry, like you are talking about specifically in Silicon Valley, the philosophy that that they take to constant innovation and constant progress can be a dangerous thing. I think a technological development doesn't necessarily equal an inherent positive, nor does right. it mean nor does it equal an inherent negative. And when what the kind of power and responsibility that I'm talking about is to allow our, to empower our democratic institutions to ensure that industries like the tech um, environment and ecosystem do not gain such enormous power that they have unlimited swaths of information, not just about the individual, but about collective trends as well. when you allow industry to become concentrated and as powerful as it's become that it can do some of the things that you are talking about um the only logical counteraction to that would be the collective democratic institutions that we call the federal government and that's not to say that those entities cannot still be corrupted in the same way that um an, an obscenely wealthy uh uh, person or corporation can. It just means that we're able to elect our leaders and that we need to figure out a way to convince a wide enough swath of the population to elect competent ones.
0: And I want to point a clarification here. When you say democratic, you don't actually mean Democrats as in Barack Obama, Joe Biden. You mean Democrats as in we have a democracy.
2: I mean, democratic as in small, small d, uh, democratic as in the people decide, majority decides.
0: Right. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that. People decide, majority decides. The Electoral College does not really allow for that and that, that this may be a whole separate episode, but majority votes, representatives decide really in that case, right? So I think some of our system. And I could be misunderstanding this incorrectly because I don't really think anybody understands the Electoral College. You may be the only human being who does.
2: Uh, You don't. Certainly don't. but.
0: (laughs) But I think that that's an interesting thing, right? Like we like to tout, I also think since World War II, we've had this big narrative of democracy good, communism bad, McCarthyism, like all of that, right? Like commies bad, Soviet bad. I recently, I went to Cuba a few years ago, and when I got to Cuba as an American who was taught like Cuba, no, right? Like that's what we're always taught. You do not want a a communist government, blah, blah. Meanwhile, nobody there was hungry. It was a very different scenario than, than what we have. I mean, it's very similar actually to like how COVID was with the grocery stores being empty and things like that. But it was a very different scenario in that everyone was educated, nobody was hungry. People were working. There didn't seem to be as much of a disparity between this and that. And, you know, I've been to Prague. So, like, I had gone to Prague 10 years ago, actually. This week I was in Prague. And uh, when I was there, I was like, wow, it really feels like the 80s. Like, it feels like things are behind, but it was still a different environment and it wasn't necessarily bad. So, I almost feel like to kind of wrap that conversation, that thought up that we have pushed this model of, as a, as a demo- democratic or as a leader of democracy in the world, mm-hmm. we wanna believe that democracy is good, but maybe our democracy has not evolved to the point where it can actually do what it needs to do in the modern world. So my question to you is, how do we, you can obviously dissent that opinion, but how do we evolve our democracy from 1776, where a lot of our stuff right, is pre-World War II. Like a lot of what we do is very much steeped in tradition mm-hmm. and bring it into the modern world. Like most countries when they had their 200, almost 300 year mark, they were at very different points. Like most of them were not even in industrial revolutions. So I think that that is a very interesting thing. We are evolving at a time when evolution has to happen rapidly because of the way our world functions but how do we have that conversation when majority of the democratic party big d doesn't understand how the technologies work
2: so there's a lot there um (laughs) i think if i can bless you I, i think if i can um narrow down what i think you're getting at it's how do our institutions which seem incapable of responding adequately in a crisis like the one that we're in right now, um, create a 21st century framework to be able to effectively govern, right? Right. Is the
1: framework
2: that we're using, even though we're taught from from diapers on up to adulthood that America is the the shining city on the hill and the example for the rest of the world to follow um clearly there's some dissatisfaction out there and clearly there's uh some some lack of adequate response um I don't know I wish I did if I did I would have a hundred million people voting for me right now and uh and and I'd be at the top of the ticket somewhere but that ain't happening
0: but Alex don't you really think that Or what do you think of a candidate coming out and saying, I don't have an answer, but I'm willing to try?
2: Um, I think our institutions need to do a better job of, um, of uh, decentralizing power within our society so that the individuals who work hard and actually produce real tangible things, given an opportunity to find um, success. And I don't think that that's happening right now. I don't think that we're entering a period of time where we're incapable of responding adequately because we're using old, to old tools in a new environment that's not, um, that that's, that's not conducive, that doesn't match up. I think that the pendulum in our system has swung so far to one side Mm. that uh, we've forgotten a little bit of our history and that we need to come back to talking about power, where that comes from, and how we can um, disseminate that adequately so that the majority of people have economic liberty and a chance for self-actualization. I don't actually think that we're facing a time and circumstances that are completely unprecedented. Yes, the names and titles and the, and the you know, the iPhone in our pocket exists now when it didn't beforehand. And all the technology is vastly improved. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it doesn't, technology is not the question, it's a question of power. These are very old stories. And I think this is a repeat of, uh, situations that we've been in before, we just need to relearn our history so that we can, so that we can respond to it adequately. And for me, that starts with taking a look at the winners in our society and figuring out how they got there, what tools they use, and how we can better reorient um, the entirety of our culture to benefit mo- the most amount of people.
0: I love that. I really. I appreciate that thought because I I think that education is almost the thing we value. Like we place a lot of monetary value on education, right? Because education is more expensive than it has ever been in the history of our nation, but we don't truly value actual education. We value the experience. We value the institution of education, but to say that someone is going to walk away with the ability to to move the world is, is, is not really happening. I, I don't think there's anyone coming out of school who says, I want to go into politics. And, and if they are, I think they're on the right. I don't think they're on the left.
2: Um, I, I definitely would disagree with that in the last couple of years. Okay. Um, I think there's been a strong reaction from the left, waking up, if you will, on the left, after the election of Donald Trump in 2016. I know I certainly have. When I was going to school, and again, I was a political science major, um, we read a book in one of my classes called The Emerging Democratic Majority. And the basic premise of the book was that we've re- we've, we've entered the 21st century and the old ideas of um, tribalism and racism and xenophobia of the past will be washed away as globalization brings all of us together into one world community. And the only party in the United States that cap- that's capable of ushering in that new era competently is the Democrats. Mm. That has clearly not been the case. Right. Um, and what we need to do is figure out why the party traditionally associated with racism, xenophobia, and fear, in my opinion, on the right, co-opting enough of a coalition to continue to win elections. Why is that happening? And that's that's really where the majority of my conversations with people come from. And they're extremely frustrating, uh, but also extremely rewarding as well.
0: So what? What when you have those conversations? What are the? Do you ever come to an actionable takeaway?
2: Um, Yeah, they're few and far between. Um, I get accused of being insensitive at times, um, but you know, I think there's an impetus on the left, specifically, to always be in agreement with one another, and that's one of the things that frustrates me right now with some of the woke politics that we're so, we seem to be so consumed with. Um, It seems as though there's always sort of a race for purity with all of this. And it's frustrating to me because it means that we kind of, even though we don't mean to with these conversations, uh, we end up discouraging a difference of opinion. And uh, when we stifle that difference of opinion a little bit, even though we're just trying to be respectful toward one another, we lack innovation to combat bad ideas and so what i've tried to do is creep in these ideas a little bit so that they're not so overt and on the nose for some people because i think that when someone runs into um, a philosophy or an idea that they don't like and it's very overt they can end up rejecting it and that's not the objective that i'm trying to fulfill I'm, i'm trying to persuade Um, And so you need to be tactful with that. I do come away with actionable takeaways. It usually takes a long time for people to come around to the idea that economic power needs to be what we're talking about. And that you need to learn the language of the financial class if you're really going to talk about things that are meaningful over constantly talking about cultural issues. Because I think it's intentional that we talk about cultural issues. And I think it's important. But I think that those cultural issues are thrown at us so that we are distracted from talking about dollars and cents and the economy and economic liberty. I think that's where the conversation has to go.
0: I was going to say, you know, it is, it's like uh, don't talk about certain things with like company, right? I, unlike the two of you, I'm still single. So people always say to me, don't talk about politics on date. I'm like, why the fuck not? Like, how can you not on like you need to have i have always felt that people need to know right so i have fierce feminist" tattooed on my wrist and feminist is sometimes a dirty word and i think that it only becomes a dirty word because of that dissension that people don't like to think that we haven't by 2020 integrated the equal rights act in a way that makes it truly equal for all women and maybe some white women like i think that, that white women have a better chance of being equal but i think that there's a lot of problems i mean to, to the point that there's this new show on hulu called miss america right i don't know if you guys have been watching it have you been watching it no it's really uh, good. I've been
1: terrible with
0: tv miss miss america mrs america,
2: america. Oh, miss america oh uh, schlafly
0: yes with yes. schlafly right yeah. so i didn't know anything about schlafly at all
2: she's a bad woman
0: yes and my my mom was like you have
1: to watch this like she's not a good
2: that one's up for interpretation but phyllis (laughs) Phyllis schlafly was uh she she got after it she was she was notorious she was ferocious
0: yeah she was so again for it's made for tv movies but you know it was very interesting and i think that this becomes and and i've talked about this a lot like This definitely becomes an issue within the female group, the female contingent. We fight with each other because that keeps us divided. And I almost feel like the liberals do the same thing, right? What they fought for was they kept saying, we're gonna draft your daughters and they're gonna send your daughters to Vietnam and you won't have any alimony. That was what they kept saying that the ERA was. That was their whole like, propagandic punchline like, If we have the ERA, if we ratify the ERA, then women will have no recourse recourse. if their husband leaves them, they will have absolutely no way to do anything, all of this. And I think what's so fascinating about that is like affirmative action started to help housewives get jobs without education. No one wants to talk about that. But I, I just think that it's very interesting. Like the ERA was not ratified in Virginia until January 15th of this year and Congress put it into place in the 70s. It took 40 something years for it to be ratified. So because of this fear-based conversation. So I I think what's interesting is we are lately in these conversations hitting on people's emotions. And I believe that there is value to having a conversation based on emotion. But I think right now we, we, whether it's parties, people or just any anyone having this these discussions are so focused on well how could you feel that way like that makes you a bad person if you don't believe that you should do x y and z right whereas i think what you're saying really is much makes much more sense you need to understand the finances because money is the only thing that drives any sense of politics any sense of policy
2: yeah is that yeah i mean I don't want to make it seem as though it's it's not something that I um, that I think is important, um, and that to to an extent, um, that particular topic, the topic of abortion or the Equal Rights Act, um, it, it of course it's important, of of course it is. And as a white straight male, um, the reason that I gravitate towards subjects like economic justice and populism is probably has something to do with my my race and gender and socioeconomic class, as opposed to focusing on something like the Equal Rights Amendment. What I would say in response to that is, number one, I think um, the, the proponents of the Equal Rights Amendment and the people who want to protect Roe v. Wade are the majority of people in this country, despite the loud voices in opposition to it right now. Those are hard fought victories and they're not something that's set in stone. It can always be regressed and taken back and it needs to constantly be, be fought for and refined and improved upon. But what I would say to that is that there is an intention behind trying to get people to talk about wedge issues like Roe v. Wade, like the second, like Second Amendment rights, like transgender rights and things of that sort. And if proponents of those things want to end up having long-term protection for those hard-fought rights, then the key to that, in, an, in, a, in a messaging sense, okay? Yeah. In, the, in, the, in the idea of building a coalition that will put the right people on the levers of power, you have to focus on corporate concentration and financial wealth mm. because the people who hold the levers in this country, the people, who finance those in power who want to destroy Roe v. Wade and invalidate it and overturn it or, um, you know, reduce the second, the conversation about the Second Amendment to an infringement on your inherent liberty as opposed to just common sense laws that we use for anything from, you know, buying, you know, owning a car or being able to drive a car to a thousand other things that you do in society. Right. Those people are put in place, they are elected and they're financed on campaign dollars from extremely wealthy individuals and groups of people that you really need to be concentrating on if you want to protect these other cultural rights that you have. Because if you don't focus on that, if you think the actual conversation is solely about those cultural issues, then the real people who have the ability to throw money at the problem and end up having the solution turn out the way they want it to, they're going to keep on getting what they want. Because you are not focused on the right thing. You're Mm -hmm. focused on the cultural as opposed to the economic, you need to break the stranglehold that concentrated financial power has on the levers of governmental power if you want things that are already widely popular culturally in our in our country right now, like common sense gun reform, like transgender rights, like the Equal Rights Amendment.
0: I, I 100% agree with you. Now I have a follow-up question. Why do you think the Democrats, Big D, are so willing to Forget, forgive, side swipe transgressions of like Hillary Clinton is a good example.
1: Mm-hmm. She was
0: not the nicest lady when things went down with, or when someone went down on her husband.
1: Literally and figuratively?
0: I mean,
1: <laughs> right?
0: She wasn't, she was very much his partner in, I'm gonna, you know, I like. He, she was very much willing to help him kind of move forward. And, you know, I I think she's an incredible politician. I do. And I, I voted for her. I cried voting for her, because to me, voting for a woman was like, I mean, from when I was eight years old, I said I wanted to be president. And then my life took a totally different course. But like, when I was a little kid, I was like, of course women can be president. And I got so much flack for it. Like, people were like, what do you mean? And I was like, no, like, there's gonna be a female president, of course. Like. Girls can do anything, so you know I, I think that when she came up, I was like, "This is not." She's like, "I didn't want Elizabeth Warren to win. I, I didn't want her to be president because I didn't feel like she was the candidate that all that work was that was worthy of all that work, right? Because she didn't do the things that that I would hope someone who has that shot would take it and run with it, right? Like." If you were the first female president, just like if you were the first African American president, there' are certain things that you could do for your subs you know for your minority group that that I think they they could do and should do, right? So my question is, like, why are we so willing to forgive some politicians' transgressions where others become memes that never end? Like not that I'm saying Donald Trump's transgressions are not criticism worthy or, Memeable right because I mean he's stupid, but like that's a personal thing. That's not a political thing So why do you think that the left is so willing to just say like, oh Maybe that happened, but like let's just push them along Right.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's an I think that's an equal impulse on the right or the and the left um,
1: yeah,
2: I think uh Democrats are certainly willing to show their hypocrisy when it comes to the transact, the transgressions of some of their candidates. Um, and I think that's a part of the problem with the idea of harping on woke politics um, all yeah. the time. It's, you know, if you turn everything into a, a purity contest or you are unwilling to take a more nuanced position against your opponent, aside from vilifying every single thing that they do, eventually they're going to co-opt your tactics and turn it around on you and make you look like a hypocrite. Mm. And that's happening right now in Joe Biden's candidacy. You yeah. Know? Um, Donald Trump is a likely rapist, obviously a womanizer, and an abuser of women, um, a a pig, right? Um, And he gets harped on it rightfully, constantly. Right. um, As he should be. Um, You would think that it would be that it would be within the Democrats mandate to want to nominate a candidate who was also not credibly accused of sexual assault. Um, but unfortunately, uh, everyone who has voted for him and supported him now has a little bit of egg on their face because they spent the last three years accusing Donald Trump of much the same tactics. Um, we talked about this earlier. I think people are willing to do some pretty ugly things and, and, and make some, uh, make some really difficult judgments and decisions when it comes to protecting some of their other rights. Now. I don't believe in Joe Biden's politics, and I don't believe in a lot of the, I, 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 I dislike him for a lot of the decisions that he's made over a very long career. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're subjected to when you have a very long career in politics. You're subjected to judgment based upon your voting record. Right. Um, but at the same time, um, I grapple with this decision myself personally over whether or not I sh- I'm gonna vote for him versus abstaining from voting, right? Um, that was what I
0: was just going to ask you. So what do yeah, we do? do I,
2: you I, vote? I would not. I would not vote uh, for Don. I can't conceive of a situation in which I would vote for Donald Trump over a, an alternate. Um, yeah. But I may abstain from voting. Um, the mm-hmm. thing that's stopping me from wow. from that, or or calling me to question that assumption, is the fact that I think that Joe Biden, despite all of his imperfections, and despite his um, um, the uh, despite the accusations against him, that his ear, if given the opportunity to be in the executive office, would be much more open to progressive ideas that I share than a Donald Trump mind. In addition to that, the president is not the only person who holds power. Uh, And we can't think about democratic, we can't think about our elections only every four years. If Donald Trump were to have another four years in office right now, there's an overwhelming likelihood that he would probably be able to appoint another extremely conservative judge to the Supreme Court, if not two. Um, And if that happens, you can kiss any hope of progressive change goodbye for the next generation. Right. And so I have to weigh those factors against someone like a Joe Biden. And I realize that to an extent, and for a lot of people, that's probably a disgusting choice, but it's a choice that I think we all need to make. Um, and, and, and we all make ugly compromises, uh, quite often throughout our lives. And, um, it's it's about more than one thing and and we need to think long and hard about it so i haven't i'm not saying i've made a decision whether or not to abstain or vote for biden but but just to give some illumination into how i think about it that's that's a little insight into it i guess
1: so can i get tagged in real quick
2: yeah
1: um so for someone like Me, who doesn't know as much as you two do, and, you know, not that it's black and white, Democratic and Republican, what are the top three things that someone should look for or look at when it comes to voting? If they don't agree, like, you know, whoever I was going to vote for, they're not in the race anymore. What are the top three things that I should look at when it comes to making my choice?
2: Vix, what do you think?
1: Uh, no, I was going to, I'll wait for you. Alex, you go first. Uh,
2: all politics is personal, and I don't think that, um, I don't think that it would be right of me to tell any one individual what I think they should be um, focused on when voting. Um, I think there's sort of this trend um, in political life nowadays to play amateur pundit where people try to make predictions and tell other people what they really should be focused on don't focus on this stuff this is what's truly important i realize i'm a bit hypocritical because i've been harping on economic power for the last hour and god knows what as opposed to other things but that's just me that that's just what i concentrate on and i could try and persuade people as much as possible but maybe what I'm focused on is not the most important thing for people. And I think everybody needs to just think on what they believe is important to them personally, and then go vote for the person that you think best represents that. Don't worry about what other people are, are thinking about or what they find important. Just go, just go vote for who you think speaks the most truth relative to your experience and let the chips fall where they're, where they may.
0: I I love that. I think it's a beautiful notion. Uh for me, the three things I'm very much concerned with the with the legislative branch. I'm very concerned. Because I think and I'm also concerned with with the like with Congress and with the Senate and the House and I think that we have to be like you said earlier much more concerned about our elections every 2 years than we are about our elections every 4 years. Because we have a system in place where you are in your position for life, and that to me is much more concerning. Because even yes, okay, fine, technically senators are up for election, but there are so many of them who have how many repeat terms? I mean, it's absurd, especially in smaller districts or you know districts where they did a lot of of redistrict re um what's the what's the phrase remind redistricting? Me? Yeah, to allow for the same mentality to be i mean one thing that i think is always so fascinating is that we often talk about how bad and this is just like a small thing but we often talk about how bad the projects are but nobody talks about the fact that in the 50s and 60s we blew up the buildings because we didn't want to fix them and the landlords thought it was acceptable to do arson as opposed to fixing buildings in hoboken in brooklyn in new jersey like all over and all these cities in the Bronx, and then we moved people effectively to these housing projects that were ripe for corruption and problems. Like we created that problem, you know. I mean, that's like the Israel issue, but I don't think we have time to get into that today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you guys could have your own separate side podcast. <laughs> I think you're right. I
2: think I think we need to concentrate on living a, a more civically committed life all around. And that doesn't just mean elections every four years or two years. I think it's important to focus on any and all elections in your area from the local PTA and board of education to your local mayor or freeholders in New Jersey, because New Jersey's a whack job state, or state senators or, um, or, or, um, you know, your members of Congress or anything like that. It's it's hugely important. I know people get easily annoyed by politics, but um, it's, it's extremely important to get involved in civic life, uh, even if you don't see change occurring quickly, because a civic-minded person is a person who cannot be fooled by... The next greatest trend or by a dogmatic person who is passionate and energetic and comes along and tells you that your problems are this instead of that or that immigrant over there as opposed to the overall structure of society or anything like that. If you're not thinking about history, if you're if you're not educated, if you're not Passionate about improving your community, then you are subject to manipulation and no one wants to be manipulated.
0: No, and I, I hope that now that we've been stuck in our homes, people by order of our governors, mayors, ceteras, I hope that people will have a, a more active role. Uh, and I want to have you back because the whole time you've been talking, I want to talk about the com what I refer to as the Camelot complex post Kennedy. Uh, because I feel like that was a big shift, like, right? Kennedy was this young, vibrant, like, you know, it was, it was what we wanted. Jackie O was a beautiful first lady. It was, it was this beautiful thing. And then it was shattered, much like a fairy tale. And I, I think that that has kind of shifted our pol- political system, because if you think then Lyndon B. Johnson sent all those boys to Vietnam, right? This is the narrative. So I want to have you back and talk a little bit about that at some point. Um, are you, are you down for that? Can we have I, you back? Any,
2: anytime. Absolutely. You're, you're speaking my language right now. So anytime I could talk for hours about it, as you can probably tell. So No,
0: it's good. I think we, you know, I, these are the conversations that I want to have. These are the conversations that I think are necessary for our generation that I think, you know, again, if you don't know history, you can't, outrun it. So I think the only way to avoid redoing what we did is is to learn. So I'm really excited um, to share this and thank you for being so open and honest with us.
2: Of course. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Good job,
1: babe. Okay. <laughs> They're so cute. I can't. <laughs> I'll make They're sure I have a lot of tequila ready for all of these conversations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Vanessa, any other any other thoughts? Are you... Uh, like, no, I mean, that is you know, the conversations are dense. It's a lot to take in and it's a lot to try and understand. So, you know, I can only hope as well as other people listening who may feel the same way that I do is with every conversation that you guys have to understand it better and to understand it more and to be able to do our small part. Because the thing that I thought about when you said uh, something about a quick change like quick changes seldom last they usually do they don't last a quick fix is not going to last things are going to take time anything worthwhile is going to take time right. so every small conversation that we have every ear that this conversation goes to is a way that minds are going to be changed in a way that the system ultimately will be changed and it, whether you know we hopefully we see it in our generation but this is how it happens and this is how it happens now because this is the world that we live in technology is our connection technology is the way that we are going to get our words out to the world so i i thank you both for letting me sit here and listen and try and take it in. And I'm probably going to ask him a million questions about what the fuck he was talking about. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm willing to be that person that everyone else listening is like, what the fuck were they talking about? I am you. I'm here. (laughs) Well, I I think
0: I really, I think this is a great conversation. I mean, I think this is one of our best episodes because we, you know, I'm not right. Like I I try to be right a lot of the time and uh, <laughs> Vanessa helps me to not be right all the time. Um, I'm sure she helps you with that Alex. I'm sure.
2: Listen, I'm a Gemini so I always yeah, think this I'm.
1: Bitch is a Gemini, I always so. think
2: I'm right too. The problem is I have competing personalities that both think that they're right. I got so. my
1: Gemini and my Taurus that I'm surrounded by. <laughs> yes,
0: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <gasps> But I present more like a Leo. So what is his rising sign? Do we know?
1: No, we need to figure that out.
2: I have no idea what any of this means. Do you know means. what time you were
1: born? We need to
0: do the Chucky Olima chart.
1: I think I actually asked your mom what time. Do you know what time you were born?
2: I couldn't
0: tell you.
1: Well, we need to find that out. once okay, we find fig-
0: let's, let's figure that out real quick.
2: Midnight on Friday the 13th. That yeah.
1: well, would
0: be a great time. Done. We're witches. Don't you know that?
1: i <laughs> you know that by now with all the crystals around this I, house <laughs> I did know
2: that oh,
0: well, all right, well, if you want to find more about Alex, I believe he started a new medium
1: book is
2: that um I'm working on it uh I'm working on it right now, so i mean i I have started becoming more vocal on facebook um because why not? I love getting uh weird uncles and people that you haven't talked to since high school, real riled up on politics. It's So, so
1: entertaining. Um, if you're tired,
2: it. if you're tired of cat videos and happy birthdays and you're looking for a little bit of uh, political fire, feel free to friend me. Um, I try to post small, large, short, long, but I will be working on putting a blog together to kind of expand on my ideas too. So I'll keep everybody informed on that.
0: I think, you should also get a public figure page, but that's just me.
2: When you uh, explain to me whatever that is, then yeah, it's, we'll it's, time,
0: think, so. it's time. for Lima List to go live.
2: We should. Uh, yes. We should. T- oh, that's another thing. Yeah. So I don't just harp on politics, although that, there's plenty of that. Um, I I really like to read, and and I, my interests are kind of all over the place. So pretty shortly, I'll probably just start a regular list where I. Take significant quotes or, or philosophies from certain books and do little blurbs and I'll recommend, you know, my reading list, just hand it out to people, let them know what I'm reading and, and really the purpose is to just get other people's ideas of what they're reading as well because I'm constantly buying way more books that I could ever read in a lifetime and it's, I really enjoy doing that. So if anybody has any ideas on reading, throw it my way too.
0: All right. And let's close out with what are you reading right now?
2: Um, So I just cracked open a monster of a book by a French economist called, uh, his name's Thomas Piketty. Uh, The book is called Capital and Ideology. And it talks about um, how different societies from different eras justify inequality um, and how those philosophies have grown from medieval times through revolutionary periods up to the modern era and what we can do with those lessons to um to fix what we find in our common in our in our modern inequality
0: i love that i'm gonna have to get into that after i read uh all these truths all these these
2: truths yeah if you think these truths is long uh this bad boy is
1: just a thousand pages
2: long it's long and it's dense. So it's... I'll, get,
0: I'll get it on my Kindle. I you know I, I don't know. I don't know if Vanessa knows this
1: about me. I read about four books a week.
2: That's awesome. That's
1: amazing. I usually it's really have fast four on my bookshelf that I shuffle. But you know, you could you could borrow it from Lima Library if you want. Really oh, cool. okay. okay. All right. Maybe I'll do that.
0: Um, no, I have some books that you on bookshelf. I think you'd both really like. My uh, Brene Brown books. Have you gotten him into Brene Brown?
1: Brene Brown
2: books. I've seen the author, but I, I haven't mm-hmm. cracked one of those books yet. But
0: there's actually a really great one. Not that I think you need to work on this because you are very good at this, but on men and vulnerability. And I think it's a very interesting conversation. So yeah, we will off. have to we will have to have you back. I'll send you it. I have it as an audio book. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a lot of books that I have really started to get into so that I can have more effective communication and conversations because I feel like people's body language when they argue is often, uh, it betrays their emotions, but it doesn't actually betray their accurate emotions. So maybe we will have to talk a little bit more about that. And I'm gonna make you take your Myers-Briggs test before we get on our next thing. And we're gonna find out when you were born so we can say what you are as a rising sign. Cause I already have an idea, but I don't want to be intuitive and shit. So thank you for joining us.
2: Let me know. Love your ideas.
0: Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, that's it. Let me, that's all she wrote. We'll see you on the next episode of The Get soon.
2: Thank you, guys.
1: Boom.